In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Glory be to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. I am thankful to Father Michael for inviting me for this pilgrimage. I think it was four years ago, 2018, the year before I moved from Kaya, California to Wyoming Catholic College, the last time that I visited here. Every time we say we're having a pilgrimage, it means at least in some way that we are making a journey at the end of which we want and expect to have an encounter with the Lord. Most Catholics are familiar with the now very popular, and it's been popular throughout the ages, pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. To be a legitimate completer of the pilgrimage, you have to either walk or bicycle at least part of the route. You have to make the journey. If you go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and it used to be that pilgrims who had completed the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, they were often called in, in medieval Europe palmers, and you got to come to church carrying a palm every day of the year if you had gone to the Holy Land. But to complete the pilgrimage, you had to, of course, venerate the tomb of the Lord in Golgotha, go to Bethlehem to the Church of the Nativity, go to the Jordan and dunk yourself in three times and say the Creed, and also venerate a number of the other holy places in Jerusalem. We tonight have made journeys of various uh, lengths, most of them short, to come here so that the Lord Jesus may, as the Holy Scripture says, shine the light of his countenance, of his face upon us, through the mirror of this holy martyr, this martyr of the early 4th century, who lived in Nicomedia, in Bithynia of Asia Minor. It all sounds long ago and far away. So let us see if we can have an understanding of it that makes it and him nearer. When St. Pantelemon shed his blood for the faith, it was during the, I cannot say final persecution in history, but during the final persecution of the church under the Roman Empire before Constantine, the so-called persecution under Diocletian. And, and Nicomedia in northwestern Asia Minor, which today, of course, we know as Turkey, but there weren't any Turks around then, was the residence of the emperor in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. By that time, the empire had been divided in two, each with an emperor, and each emperor had a kind of co-emperor called a Caesar, so four figures in all. And in the east, the imperial residence was in this city of Nicomedia. Now, Asia Minor 
by this time had become that part of the Roman Empire that had the highest proportion of Christians. Christians were still a minority in the empire. But in Asia Minor, their numbers had increased very considerably. Of course, it's in Asia Minor that the Apostle John and the Theotokos herself went in the first century. The letters to the seven churches in the last book of the New Testament, the Apocalypse, are addressed to churches in Asia Minor. And by the time of the beginning of the fourth century, the Christians there were not unwilling to defend their faith, even in the face of imperial persecution. Their numbers were great enough so that they could do that. Thus, if you look in the Synoxarion, that's the, the part of Matins that tells us the saints of the day, the list of the saints of the day, if you look at the Synaxarian for Christmas Day, among the saints listed there are the martyrs who suffered in the church of Nicomedia when it was burnt down during the persecution under Diocletian. Now that tells us a very interesting thing because for the most part, Christians did not have public places of worship until the time of Constantine, after the persecutions had ended. They worshipped in house churches, where those members of the church who had the means set aside a room that was set up as permanently as it could be for divine worship. But in Nicomedia, the very city where the emperor resided, by this time they had a church building of some kind that was conspicuous enough so the Romans could burn it down. That means that they were not afraid to be a public presence. There's another little village there, I forget the name, but when the edict came out beginning the persecution under Diocletian, and of course Christians were commanded to renounce Christ and sacrifice to the emperor as God, and so the new magistrate in town put up the edict and said, okay, everybody, Tomorrow morning, you've got to come here to the forum and do this. And the entire village in this case was Christian. And they turned up in the morning to tell the magistrate, no. If you want to enforce this, you'll have to kill the whole village. And the magistrate said, Rome's far away, I'll write some kind of letter. <laughs> so... The Christian presence was growing there. I, want, I took the time to describe that so as to provide a background. That's the church life that Pontelemon was born into of a pagan father and a Christian mother. Not uncommon in those days. And his Christian mother named him for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pantelemonos, the all-merciful one in Greek. So he was named with the title of the All-Merciful Savior. So that tells us something about the kind of Christian mother that he had. Devout. In his youth, he began the study of medicine and was so skilled that at a young age, he's always shown beardless 
as a young man. It was said that he was very handsome. And he's also always shown, and this is the way that the iconography is a theological statement, he's always shown with a medicine box, but the medicine box is shaped very much like the ark form of the Byzantine tabernacle in which we keep the presanctified gifts during Great Lent. And he's also shown holding what looks very much like a communion spoon. Now, St. Pantelaimon was not a priest, and he never distributed Holy Communion. Why does the church show him in this Eucharistic posture? It's to, to tell us, to remind us, that as we honor him as a healer, ultimately the healing that we seek is the new life in Christ. The healing that we ultimately seek, although of course we ask him, as people asked him in the Gospels, to have mercy on us in our infirmities of body, soul, and mind. Yes, we ask it. But just as the Lord Jesus raised those three people, the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow of Nain and Lazarus, his friend from death, they all died again and their ultimate resurrection would be as all await now who have died in the Lord, except our blessed lady, who now shares the glory of his resurrection already. Everybody else waits for that ultimate glory of the resurrection, and that's our ultimate healing. Saint Ignatius of Antioch in the first century or beginning of the second called the Holy Eucharist the pharmakion athanasias, the medicine of immortality. So whatever medicines St. Pantelaimon distributed from his box, they were, as it, as it were, only images of the true medicine of immortality. All right, so Pantelaimon, at a young age, became a physician known for his skill, and he was chosen to be one of the court physicians there in Nicomedia, where the imperial palace was. And finally, the co-Caesar there, the vice-emperor, Galerius Maximian, asked him to attend to him personally. And this was right at the time when the persecution ordered by the emperor, Diocletian, for whom Galerius Maximian was co-regent, broke out. And so Pantelaimon was in a dilemma. Here he was as a young man in a most enviable position of the physician to the co-emperor and therefore favored. And yet, were they to know that he was a Christian, that would not only be the end of his position of favor, but also the end of his life in the world. And so the accounts tell us that Pantelaimon, for a time, although he did not directly apostatize, he did not renounce Christ, yet he quietly retreated from the practice of the faith so as to remain safe until 
the priest who had baptized him, whose name is always associated with St. Pantelemon, Ermolaus, spoke to him and basically said to him something perhaps that all Christian young men need to be told from time to time. Remember your mother. The mother who named you for the all-merciful Savior. And no doubt, Ermolaus said other things to him as well. Pantelemon returned to the faith. He distributed all of his goods to the poor. He began to treat the sick without asking for payment. We called him one of, uh, one of the Agi Anargiri in Greek, the holy silverless ones, literally. The one, the one who healed without asking for payment. It is said that he did great miracles in the name of the Lord, even to the point of raising the dead, as Jesus said that his disciples would do. His fellow courtiers figured out what was going on and denounced him to the emperor as a Christian. The emperor, the account says, tried to save him, as frequently went on. We sometimes picture the Roman emperors and magistrates as always being bloodthirsty and cruel, and some of them were. But others of them said, well, you don't really have to renounce being a Christian. Just go through the motions of it. Keep the law, and we'll leave you alone. And that was offered to Pantelemon, and he would not, so he was tortured and beheaded. So there is a witness of non-compromise at a time when the number of Christians were increasing and the efforts of the world in the form of the Roman Empire to destroy them also increasing. So what is that saying to us now who come to ask his intercession that he might pray to the Lord for us to be healed? It is a good thing to ask the Lord for healing for physical infirmities and those of mind as well, for our loved ones, for ourselves. But not to make that healing into some kind of idol, as if it were the only thing that mattered. There can be an unhealthy fascination with healing, in which healing becomes a primary thing instead of a secondary thing. When the ultimate healing which comes in the resurrection and the life of the age to come, as we always conclude the is kind of pushed to the sides and replaced with hope for well-being in this life. This life in which we have the Lord's own promise to his disciples that in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. These are his last words to his disciples before the Passion. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Pantelemon went to his death believing that the powers of the world that had set themselves against the Lord and King 
of everything in heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ, our Savior, had been overcome. And that is where we must begin with our honoring St. Pantelemon and celebrating this pilgrimage of healing. Now, finally, St. Pantelemon is one of a small group of martyrs that are known in the church for their, the relics of their blood either liquefying on their feast day or else remaining continually in liquid form. I have a very interesting letter here of St. John Henry Newman, who witnessed the miraculous blood of St. Pantelemon in the little town of Ravello in Italy. And this was right two years after St. John Henry Newman had entered the Catholic Church. And he had a certain, and it's not wrong to have this, he had a certain skepticism about undue claims to spectacular miracles. He had his doubts about those things. He was a very rational man. And he witnessed a number of these things, and this is what he says to his friend Henry Wilberforce, written on September 17, 1847. I won't read the whole thing, just the part about St. Pantelemon, because he describes some of the other miracles with St. Januarius or Gennaro and so forth. Then he says, the most strange phenomenon of them all is what happens at Ravello, a village or town above Amalfi. There is the blood of St. Pantaleon, which is the, the Italian form of the name, Pantalemo. It is in a vessel amid the stonework of the altar. It is not touched, but on his feast day, it liquefies. And more than this, now this is a, this is a bit of a shock, and more than this, there is an excommunication posted against anyone who would bring a relic of the true cross into the church. Why? Because the blood of St. Pantelemon liquefies whenever a relic of the true cross is brought. A person I know, not knowing the prohibition, brought in a relic of the true cross, and the priest who was showing the blood, seeing it liquefied, shouted, who has got a relic of the cross on him? I tell you what was told me by a grave and religious man. It is a curious coincidence that on telling this to our father director here in Rome, he said, why? We have a portion of St. Pantelemon's blood at the Chiesa Nuova, the new church of the Oratorians in Rome, and it's always liquid. The blood of the martyrs. In this case, for a sign, uh, we don't make these things into articles of faith, but a sign of what we do believe, that the blood of the martyrs shed for Christ is a sign of those who live in Christ. The bright, red, warm blood of the martyrs. Let's ask the great martyr and healer in this time that we live in, which is getting colder and grayer and emptier of hope, for a bright, red, warm faith.
and love for the all-merciful Savior for whom he was named. Amen.